This video is part of an audio series featuring the book The War of Art, Break Through the Blocks and Win Your Inner Creative Battles by Stephen Pressfield. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Book 3. Beyond Resistance, The Higher Realm The first duty is to sacrifice to the gods and pray them to grant you the thoughts, words, and deeds, likely to render your command most pleasing to the gods, and to bring yourself, your friends, and your city the fullest measure of affection and glory and advantage. Words by Xenophon in The Cavalry Commander Angels in the Abstract The next few chapters are going to be about those invisible psychic forces that support and sustain us in our journey toward ourselves. I plan on using terms like muses and angels. Does that make you uncomfortable? If it does, you have my permission to think of angels in the abstract. Consider these forces are as being impersonal as gravity. Maybe they are. It's not hard to believe, is it, that a force exists in every grain and seed to make it grow, or that in every kitten or colt is an instinct that impels it to run and play and learn. Just as resistance can be thought of as personal, I've said resistance loves such and such or hates such and such, it can be also viewed as a force of nature as impersonal as entropy or molecular decay. Similarly, the call to growth can be conceptualized as personal, a daemon, a genius, an angel, or a muse or as impersonal, like the tides or the transiting of Venus. Either way works, as long as we are comfortable with it. Or, if extra-dimensionality doesn't sit well with you in any form, think of it as talent, programmed into our genes by evolution. The point, for the thesis I'm seeking to put forward, is that there are forces we can call our allies. As resistance works to keep us from becoming who we were, bo who we were born to be, Equal and opposite powers are counterpoised against it. These are our allies and angels. Approaching the Mystery Why have I stressed professionalism so heavily in the preceding section? Because the most important thing about art is to work. Nothing else matters except sitting down every day and trying. Why is this so important? Because when we sit down day after day and keep grinding something mysterious ha starts to happen. A process is set into motion by which, inevitably and infallibly, heaven comes to our aid. Unseen forces enlist in our cause. Serendipity reinforces our purpose. This is the other secret that real artists know and wannabe writers don't. When we sit down every day and do our work, power concentrates around us. The muse takes note of our dedication. She approves. We have earned favor in her sight. When we sit down and work, we become like a magnetized rod that attracts iron filings. Ideas come. Insights accrete. Just as resistance has its seat in hell, so creation has its home in heaven. And it is not just a witness, but an eager and active ally. What I call professionalism, someone else might call the artist's code, or the warrior's way. It's an attitude of egolessness and service. The knights of the round table were chaste and self-effacing, yet they dueled dragons. 
we are facing dragons too. Fire-breathing griffins of the soul, whom we must outfight and outwit to reach the treasure of our self in potential, and to release the maiden who is God's plan and destiny for ourselves and the reason to why we were put on this planet. Invoking the Muse The quote from Xenophon that opens this section comes from a pamphlet called The Cavalry Commander, in which the celebrated warrior and historian prefers instruction to those young gentlemen who aspired to be officers of the Athenian Equestrian Corps. He declares that the commander's first duty, before he mucks out a stable or seeks funding from the Defense Review Board, is to sacrifice to the gods and invoke their aid. I do the same thing. The last thing I do before I sit down to work is say my prayer to the muse. I say it out loud and in absolute earnest, and only then do I get down to business. In my late twenties, I rented a little house in Northern California. I had gone there to finish a novel or kill myself trying. By that time, I had blown up a marriage to a girl I loved with all my heart, screwed up two careers, blah, blah, etc. All because, though I had no understanding of this at the time, I could not handle resistance. I had one novel nine-tenths of the way through, and another at ninety-nine one-hundredths before I threw them both in the trash. I couldn't finish them. I didn't have the guts. In yielding thusly to resistance, I fell prey to every vice, evil, distraction, you name it mentioned heretofore, all leading nowhere, and finally washed up in this sleepy California town with my Chevy van, my cat Mo, and my antique Smith Corona typewriter. A guy named Paul Rink lived down the street. Look him up. He's in Henry Miller's Big Sur in the Oranges of Hieronymus Bosch. Paul was a writer. He lived in his camper, Moby Dick. I started each day over coffee with Paul. He turned me on to all kinds of authors I had never heard of, lectured me on self-discipline, dedication, the evils of the marketplace. And best of all, he shared with me his prayer, the invocation of the muse from Homer's Odyssey, the T.E. Lawrence translation. Paul typed it out for me on his even more ancient than mine manual Remington typewriter, I still have it. It's yellow and parched as dust. The merest puff would blow it to powder. In my little house, I have no TV. I never read a newspaper or went to a movie. I just worked. One afternoon, I was banging away in the little bedroom I had converted to an office when I heard my neighbor's radio playing outside. Someone in a loud voice was declaiming, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. I came out. What's going on? Didn't you hear? Nixon's out. They got a new guy in there. I had missed Watergate completely. I was determined to keep working. I had failed so many times and caused myself and people I loved so much pain thereby that I felt if I crapped out this time, I would have to hang myself. I didn't know what resistance was then. No one had schooled me in the concept. I felt it though, big time. I experienced it as a compulsion to self-destruct. I could not finish what I started. The closer I got, the more different ways I'd find to screw it up. I worked for 26 months straight, taking only two out for a stint of migrant labor in Washington State. And finally, one day I got to the last page and typed out, The End. I never did find a buyer for the book, or the next one either. 
It was ten years before I got the first check for something I had written, and ten more before a novel, The Legend of Bagger Vance, was actually published. But that moment when I hit the keys to spell out the end was apocal. I remember rolling the last page out and adding it to the, script, to the stack that was the finished manuscript. Nobody knew I was done. Nobody cared. But I knew. I felt like a dragon I'd been fighting all my life had just dropped dead at my feet and gasped out its last sulfuric breath. Rest in peace, motherfucker. Next morning, I went over to Paul's for coffee and told him I had finished. Good for you, he said without looking up. Start the next one today. Invoking the Muse, Part 2 Before I met Paul, I had never heard of the Muses, so he enlightened me. The Muses were nine sisters, daughters of Zeus and Mnemosyne, which means memory. Their names are Cleo, Erato, Thalia, Terpsichor, Calliope, Polyhymnia, Euterpe, Melpomene, and Urania. Their job is to inspire artists, and each muse is responsible for a different art. There's a neighborhood in New Orleans where the streets are named after the muses. I lived there once and had no idea. I thought that they were just weird names. Here is Socrates in Plato's Phaedrus on the noble effect of heaven-sent madness, where it says, The third type of possession and madness is possession by the muses. When this seizes upon a gentle and virgin soul, it rouses it to inspired expression in lyric and other sorts of poetry, and glorifies countless deeds of the heroes of old for the instruction of posterity. But if a man comes to the door of poetry untouched by the madness of the muses, believing that technique alone will make him a good poet, he and his sane competitions will never reach perfection, but are utterly eclipsed by the, by the performances of the inspired madman." End quote. The Greek way of apprehending the mystery was to personify it. The ancients sensed powerful, primordial forces in the world. To make them more approachable, they gave them human faces. They called them Zeus, Apollo, and Aphrodite. American Indians felt the same mystery, but rendered it in animistic forms. Bear teacher, hawk messenger, coyote trickster. Our ancestors were keenly cognizant of forces and energies, whose seat was not in this material sphere, but in a loftier, more mysterious one. What did they believe about this higher reality? First, they, they believed that death did not exist there. The gods are immortal. The gods, though not unlike humans, are infinitely more powerful. To defy their will is futile. To act toward heaven with pride is to call down calamity. Time and space display an altered existence in this higher dimension. The gods travel swift as thought. They can tell the future, some of them, and though the playwright Agathon tells us, quote, this alone is denied to God, the power to undo the past, end quote. Yet the immortals can play tricks with time, as we ourselves may sometimes, in dreams or in visions. The universe, the Greeks believed, was not indifferent. The gods take an interest in human affairs, and intercede for good or ill in our designs. The, contem the contemporary view is that all this is charming but preposterous. Is it? Then answer this. Where did Hamlet come from? Where did the Parthenon come from? Where did Nude Descending a Staircase come from? 
Testament of a Visionary. Quote, Eternity is in love with the creations of time, end quote, by William Blake. The visionary poet William Blake was, so I understand, one of those half-mad avatars who appear in flesh from time to time, savants capable of ascending for brief periods to loftier planes and returning to share the wonders that they have seen. Shall we try to decipher the meaning of the verse above? What Blake means by eternity, I think, is the sphere higher than this one, a plane of reality superior to the material dimension in which we dwell. In eternity, there is no such thing as time, or Blake's syntax wouldn't distinguish it from eternity, and probably no space either. This plane may be inhabited by higher creatures, or it may be pure consciousness or spirit. But whatever it is, according to William Blake, it is capable of being in love. If beings inhabit this plane, I take Blake to mean that they are incorporeal. They don't have bodies but they have a connection to the sphere of time, the one we live in. These gods or spirit participate in this dimension. They take an interest in it. Eternity is in love with the creations of time means, to me, that in some way these creatures of the higher sphere, or the sphere itself in the abstract, take joy in what we time-bound beings can bring forth into physical existence in our limited material sphere. It may be pushing the envelope, but if these beings take, take joy in the creations of time, might not they also nudge us a little to produce them? If that is true, then the image of the muse whispering inspiration in the artist's ear is quite apt. The timeless communicating to the time bound. By Blake's model, as I understand it, it's as though the Fifth Symphony existed already in that higher sphere, before Beethoven played down, sat down and played dun-dun-dun-dum. The catch was this. The work existed only as potential, without a body, so to speak. It wasn't music yet. You couldn't play it. You couldn't hear it. It needed someone. It needed a corporeal be being, a human, an artist, or more precisely, a genius, in the Latin sense of soul or animating spirit, to bring it into being on this material plane. So, the muse whispered in Beethoven's ear. Maybe she hummed a few bars into a million other ears, but no one else heard her. Only Beethoven got it. And he brought it forth. He made the Fifth Symphony a creation of time, which eternity could be in love with. So that eternity, whether we conceive of it as God, pure consciousness, infinite intelligence, omniscient, om, omniscient spirit, or if we choose to think of it as beings, gods, spirits, or avatars, when it or they hear somehow the sound of earthly music, it brings them joy. In other words, Blake agrees with the gods. The gods do exist. They do penetrate our earthly sphere. Which brings us back to the muse. The muse, remember, is the daughter of Zeus, father of the gods, and memory, mnemosyne. That's a pretty impressive pedigree. I'll accept those credentials. And I will take Xenophon at his word. Before I sit down to work, I'll take a minute and show respect to this unseen power who can make or break me. Invoking the Muse, Part 3 Artists have invoked the muse since time immemorial. 
There is great wisdom to this. There is magic to effacing our human arrogance and humbly entreating help from a source we cannot see, hear, touch, or smell. Here is the start of Homer's Odyssey, the T.E. Lawrence translation. Quote, O divine Posey, goddess, daughter of Zeus, sustain for me this song of the various-minded man who, after he had plundered the innermost citadel of hallowed Troy, was made to stay grievously about the coasts of men, the sport of their customs, good and bad, while his heart, through all the seafaring, ached with an agony to redeem himself and bring his company safe home. Vain hope for them, the fools! Their own witlessness cast them aside, to destroy for meat the oxen of the most exalted sun, wherefore the sun god blotted out the day of their return. Make this tale live for us in all its many bearings, O muse. End quote. This passage will reward closer study. First, divine poesy. When we invoke the muse, we are calling on a force not just from a different plane of reality, but from a holier plane. Goddess, daughter of Zeus. Not only are we invoking divine intercession, but intercession on the highest level, just one removed from the top. Sustained for me. Homer doesn't ask for brilliance or success. He just wants to keep this thing going. This song. That about covers it. From the Brothers Karamazov to your new venture in the plumbing supply business. I love the summation of Odysseus's trials that comprises the body of the invocation. It's Joseph Campbell's hero's journey in a nutshell, as concise a synopsis as the story of every man as it gets. There's the initial crime, which we all inevitably commit, which ejects the hero from his homebound complacency and propels him upon his wanderings. The yearning for redemption, the untiring campaign to get home, meaning back to God's grace, back to himself. I admire particularly the warning against the second crime, to destroy for meat the oxen of the most exalted son. That's the felony that calls down soul destruction, the employment of the sacred for profane means, prostitution, selling out. Lastly, the artist's wish for his work. Make this tale live for us in all its many bearings, O muse. That's what we want, isn't it? More than make it great, make it live. Not only from one angle only, but in all its many bearings. Okay, we've said our prayer. We're ready to work. Now what? The Magic of Making a Start Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would not otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man would have dreamed would come his way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, magic, and power in it. Begin now. That was from W.H. Murray in The Scottish Himalayan Expedition. Did you ever see Wings of Desire, Wim Wenders' film about angels among us? City of Angels with Meg Ryan and Nicolas Cage is the American version. I believe it. I believe there are angels. They're here, but we can't see them. 
angels work for God. It's their job to help us, to wake us up, to bump us along. Angels are agents of evolution. The Kabbalah describes angels as bundles of light, meaning intelligence and consciousness. Kabbalists believe that above every blade of grass is an angel crying, Grow! Grow! I'll go further. I believe that above the entire human race is one super angel crying, Evolve! Evolve! Angels are like muses. They know stuff that we don't. They want to help us. They are on the other side of a pane of glass shouting to get our attention. But we can't hear them. We're too distracted by our own nonsense. Ah, but when we begin, when we make a start, when we conceive an enterprise and commit to it in the face of our fears, something wonderful happens. A crack appears in the membrane, like the first craze when a chick pecks at the inside of its shell. Angel midwives congregate around us. They assist as we give birth to ourselves, to that person we were born to be, to the one whose destiny was encoded in our soul, our demon, and our genius. When we make a beginning, we get out of our own way and allow the angels to come in and do their job. They can speak to us now, and it makes them happy. It makes God happy. Eternity, as Blake might have told us, has opened a portal into time, and we are that portal. The Magic of Keeping Going When I finish a day's work, I head up into the hills for a hike. I take a pocket tape recorder because I know that as my surface mind empties with the walk, another part of me will chime in and start, and start talking. Such as, the word Lear on page 342, it should be ogle. Or, you repeated yourself in chapter 21. The last sentence is just like that one in the middle of chapter 7. That's the kind of stuff that comes. It comes to all of us every day, every minute. These paragraphs I'm writing now were dictated to me yesterday. They replace a prior, weaker opening to this chapter. I'm unspooling the new, improved version right now, off the tape recorder. This process of self-revision and self-correction is so common that we don't even notice. But it's a miracle, and its implications are staggering. Who's doing this revising anyway? What force is yanking at our sleeves? What does it tell us about the architecture of our psyches that without our exerting effort or even thinking about it, some voice in our head pipes us up to counsel us, and counsel wisely, on how to do our work and live our lives. Whose voice is it? What software is grinding away, scanning gigabytes while we, our mainstream selves, are, are otherwise occupied? Are these angels? Are they muses? Is this the unconscious or the self? Whatever it is, it is smarter than we are. A lot smarter. It doesn't need us to tell it what to do. It goes to work all by itself. It seems to want the work. It seems to enjoy it. What exactly is it doing? It's organizing. The principle of organization is built into nature. Chaos itself is self-organizing. Out of primordial disorders, stars find their orbits and rivers make their way to the sea. When we, like God, set out to create a universe, a book or an opera or a new business venture, the same principle kicks in. Our screenplay resolves itself into a three-act structure. Our symphony takes shape into movement. Our plumbing supply venture discovers its optimum chain of command. How do we experience this? 
by having ideas. Insights pop into our heads while we're shaving or taking a shower or even, amazingly, while we are actually working. The elves behind this are smart. If we forget something, they remind us. If we veer off course, they trim the tabs and steer us back. What can we conclude from this? Clearly, some intelligence is at work, independent of our conscious mind and yet in alliance with us, processing our material for us and alongside us. This is why artists are modest. They know that they're not doing the work. They're just taking dictation. It's also why non-creative people hate creative people. It's because they're jealous. They sense that artists and writers are tapped into some grid of energy and inspiration that they themselves cannot connect with. Of course, this is nonsense. We are all creative. We all have this same psyche. The same everyday miracles are happening in all of our heads day by day, minute by minute. Largo. In my 20s, I drove tractor trailers for a company called Burton Lines in Durham, North Carolina. I wasn't very good at it. My self-destruction demons had me. Only blind luck kept me from killing myself and any other poor suckers who happened to be on the highway at the same time. It was a tough period. I was broke. I was estranged from my wife and family. And one night, I had this dream. I was a part of the crew of an aircraft carrier. Only the ship was stuck on dry land. It was still launching its jets and doing its thing, but it was marooned half a mile from the ocean. The sailors all knew how screwed up the situation was. They felt it as a keen and constant distress. The only bright spot was that there was a marine gunnery sergeant on board named Largo. In the dream, it seemed like the coolest name anyone could possibly have. Largo. I loved it. Largo was one of those hardcore senior non-coms, like the Burt Lancaster character, Warden, in From Here to Eternity. The one guy on the ship who knows exactly what's going on. The tough old Sarge who makes all the decisions and actually runs the show. But where was Largo? I was standing miserably by the rail when the captain came over and started talking to me. Even he was lost. It was his ship, but he didn't know how to get it off dry land. I was nervous, finding myself in conversation with the brass, and couldn't think of a thing to say. The skipper didn't seem to notice. He just turned to me casually and said, What the hell are we going to do, Largo? I woke up electrified. I was Largo. I was the salty old gunny. The power to take charge was in my hand. All I had to do was believe it. Where did this dream come from? Plainly, its intent was benevolent. What was its source? And what does it say about the workings of the universe that such things happen at all? Again, we've all had dreams like that. Again, they are as common as dirt. So is the sunrise. That doesn't make it any less of a miracle. Before I got to North Carolina, I worked in the oil fields around Beerus, Louisiana. I lived in a bunkhouse with a bunch of other transient geeks. One guy had picked up a paperback about meditation in a bookstore in New Orleans, and he was teaching me how to do it. I used to go out to the dock after work and see if I could get into it. And one night, this came. I was sitting cross-legged when an eagle came and landed on my shoulders. The eagle merged with me and took off flying, so that my head became its head and my arms its wings. 
I felt completely authentic. I could feel the air under my wings, as solid as water feels when you row in it with an oar. It was substantial. You could push off against it. So this was how birds flew. I realized that it was impossible for a bird to fall out of the sky. All it would have to do was extend its wings. The solid air would hold it up with the same power we feel when we stick our hand out the window of a moving car. I was pretty impressed with this idea that, that this movie was playing in my head, but I still had no idea what it meant. I asked the eagle, Hey, what am I supposed to be learning from this? And a voice answered, silently, You're supposed to learn that things you actually think are nothing, as weightless as air, are actually powerful, substantial forces, as real and as solid as Earth. I understood. The eagle was telling me that dreams, visions, meditations such as this very one, things that I had till now disdained as fantasy and illusion, were as real and as solid as anything in my waking life. I believed the eagle. I got the message. How could I not? I had felt the solidness of the air. I knew that he was telling the truth. Which brings us back to the question. Where did the eagle come from? Why did he show up at just the right time to tell me just what I needed to hear? Clearly, some unseen intelligence had created him, giving him form as an eagle so that I would understand what it wanted to communicate. This intelligence was babying me along, keeping it simple, making its point in terms so clear and elementary that even someone as numb and asleep as I could understand. Life and Death Remember the movie Billy Jack starring Tom Laughlin? The film and its sequels have long since decamped to cable, but Tom Laughlin is still very much around. In addition to his movie work, he is a lecturer and author, and a Jungian-schooled psychologist whose specialty is working with people who have been diagnosed with cancer. Tom Laughlin teaches and leads workshops. Here's a paraphrase of something I heard him say. The moment a person learns he's got terminal cancer, a profound shift takes place in his psyche. At one stroke in the doctor's office, he becomes aware of what really matters to him. Things that 60 seconds earlier had seemed all-important suddenly appear meaningless, while people and concerns that he had till then dismissed at once take on supreme importance. Maybe, he realizes, working this weekend on that big deal at the office isn't all that vital. Maybe it's more important to fly cross-country for his grandson's graduation. Maybe it isn't so crucial that he should have the last word in the fight with his wife. Maybe instead, he should tell her how much she means to him and how deeply he has always loved her. Other thoughts occurred to the patient diagnosed as terminal. What about that gift he had for music? What became of the passion he once felt to work with the sick and the homeless? Why do these unlived lives return now with such power and poignancy? Faced with our imminent extinction, Tom Laughlin believes, all assumptions are called into question. What does our life mean? Have we lived it right? Are there vital acts we've left unperformed and crucial words unspoken? Is it too late? Tom Laughlin draws a diagram of the psyche, a Jungian-derived model that looks something like this. The ego, Jung tells us, is that part of the psyche that we think of as I. Is it Jung? Not Jung, it's Jung. 
our everyday brain that thinks, plans, and runs the show of our day-to-day -day life. The self, as Jung defined it, is a greater entity, which includes the ego, but also incorporates the personal and collective unconscious. Dreams and intuitions come from the self. The archetypes of the unconscious dwell there. It is, Jung believed, the sphere of the soul. What happens in that instant when we learn we may die, Laughlin contends, is that the seat of our consciousness shifts. It moves from the ego to the self. The world is entirely new, viewed from the self. At once we discern what's really important. Superficial concerns fall away, replaced by a deeper, more profoundly grounded perspective. This is how Laughlin's foundation battles cancer. He counsels his clients not just to make that shift mentally, but to live it out in their lives. He supports the housework in resuming the housewife in resuming her career in social work. He urges the businessman to return to the violin, and assists the Vietnam vet to write his novel. Miraculously, cancers go into remission. People recover. Is it possible, Laughlin asks, that the, the disease itself evolved as a consequence of actions taken or not taken in our lives? Could our unlived lives have exacted their vengeance upon us in the form of cancer? And if they did, can we cure ourselves now by living these lives out? The Ego and the Self Here's what I think. I think angels make their home in the self, while resistance has its seat in the ego. The fight is between the two. The self wishes to create, to evolve. The ego likes things just the way they are. What is the ego anyway? Since this is my book, I'll define it in my way. The ego is that part of the psyche that believes in material existence. The ego's job is to take care of business in the real world. It's an important job. We couldn't last a day without it. But there are other worlds other than the real world, and this is where the ego runs into trouble. Here is what the ego believes. 1. Death is real. The ego believes that our existence is defined by our, by our physical flesh. When the body dies, we die. There is no life beyond life. 2. Time and space are real. The ego is analog. It believes that to get from A to Z, we have to pass through B, C, and D. To get from breakfast to supper, we have to live through the whole day. 3. Every individual is different and separate from every other. The ego believes that I am distinct from you. The twain cannot meet. I can hurt you, and it won't hurt me. 4. The predominant impulse of life is self-preservation. Because our existence is physical, and thus vulnerable to innumerable evils, we live and act out of fear in all we do. It is wise, the ego believes, to have children to carry on our line when we die, to achieve great things that will live after us, and to buckle our seatbelts. 5. There is no God. No sphere exists except the physical, and no rules apply except those of the material world. Those are the principles the ego lives by. They are sound, solid principles. However, here is what the self believes. Death 1. Death is an illusion. The soul endures and evolves through infinite manifestations. 2. Time and space are illusions. 
Time and space operate only in the physical sphere, and even here don't apply to dreams, visions, and transports. In other dimensions, we move swift as thought and inhabit multiple planes simultaneously. 3. All beings are one. If I hurt you, I hurt myself. 4. The supreme emotion is love. Union and mutual assistance are the imperatives of life. We are all in this together. 5. God is all there is. Everything that is, is God in one form or another. God, the divine ground, is that in which we live and move and have our being. Infinite planes of reality exist, all created by, sustained by, and infused by the Spirit of God. Experiencing the Self Have you ever wondered why the slang terms for intoxication are so demolition-oriented? Stoned, smashed, hammered. It's because they're talking about the ego. It's the ego that gets blasted, waxed, and plastered. We demolish the ego to get to the self. The margins of the self touch upon the divine ground, meaning the mystery, the void, the source of infinite wisdom and consciousness. Dreams come from the self. Ideas come from the self. When we meditate, we access the self. When we fast, when we pray, when we go on a vision quest, it's the self that we're seeking. When the dervish whirls, when the yogi chants, when the sadhu mutilates his flesh, when penitents crawl a hundred miles on their knees, when Native Americans pierce themselves in the sun dance, when suburban kids take ecstasy and dance all night at a rave, they are seeking the self. When we deliberately alter our consciousness in any way, we are trying to save or to find the self. When the alcoholic collapses in the gutter, the voice that tells him, I'll save you, comes from the self. The self is our deepest being. The self is united to God. The self is incapable of falsehood. The self, like the divine ground that permeates it, is ever-growing and ever-evolving. The self speaks for the future, and that's why the ego hates it. The ego hates the self because when we seat our consciousness in the self, we put the ego out of business. The ego doesn't want us to evolve. The ego runs the show right now. It likes things just the way they are. The instinct that pulls us toward art is the impulse to evolve, to learn, to heighten and elevate our consciousness. The ego hates this because the more awake we become, the less we need the ego. The ego hates it when the awakening writer sits down at the typewriter. The ego hates it when the aspiring painter steps up before the easel. The ego hates it because it knows that these souls are awakening to a call, and that that call comes from a plane nobler than the material one, and from a source deeper and more powerful than the physical. The ego hates the prophet and the visionary because they propel the race upward. The ego hated Socrates and Jesus, Luther and Galileo, Lincoln and JFK and Martin Luther King. The ego hates artists because they are pathfinders and bearers of the future, because each one dares, in James Joyce's phrase, to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. Such evolution is life-threatening to the ego. 
it reacts accordingly. It summons its cunning, marshals its troops. The ego produces resistance and attacks the awakening artist. Fear. Resistance feeds on fear. We experience resistance as fear. But fear of what? Fear of the consequences of following our heart. Fear of bankruptcy. Fear of poverty. Fear of insolvency. Fear of groveling when we try to make it on our own. And of groveling when we give up and come crawling back to where we started. Fear of being selfish. Of being rotten wives or disloyal husbands. Fear of failing to support our families or sacrificing their dreams for ours. Fear of betraying our race, our hood, our homies. Fear of failure. Fear of being ridiculous. Fear of throwing away the education, the training, the preparation that those we love have sacrificed so much for that we ourselves have worked our butt off for. Fear of launching into the void, of hurtling too far out there. Fear of passing some point of no return, beyond which we cannot recant, cannot reverse, cannot rescind, but must live up, but must live with this cocked up choice for the rest of our lives. Fear of madness, fear of insanity, and fear of death. These are serious fears, but they're not the real fear, not the master fear, the mother of all fears, that's so close to us that even when we verbalize it, we don't believe it. This is fear that we will succeed. That we can access the powers we secretly know we possess. That we can become the person we sense in our hearts we truly are. This is the most terrifying prospect a human being can face. Because it ejects him at one go, he imagines, from all the tribal inclusions his psyche is wired for and has been for 50 million years. We fear discovering that we are more than we think we are. More than our parents children and teachers think we are. We fear that we actually possess the talent that our still small voice tells us, that we actually have the guts, the perseverance, and the capacity. We fear that we truly can steer our ship, plant our flag, or reach our promised land. We fear this because, if it's true, then we become estranged from all we know. We pass through a membrane. We become monsters and are monstrous. We know that if we embrace our ideals, we must prove worthy of them, and that scares the hell out of us. What will become of us? We will lose our friends and family, who will no longer recognize us. We will wind up alone in the cold void of starry space, with nothing and no one to hold on to. Of course, this is exactly what happens. But here's the trick. We wind up in space, but not alone. Instead, we are tapped into an unquenchable, undepletable, inexhaustible source of wisdom, consciousness, and companionship. Yes, we lose friends, but we find friends too, in places we never thought to look. And they are better friends, truer friends, and we are better and truer to them. Do you believe me? The Authentic Self Do you have kids? Then you know that not one of them popped out as a tabula rasa, a blank slate. Each came into this world with a distinct and unique personality, an identity so set up that you can fling stardust and great balls of fire at it and not morph it by one micro dot. Each kid was who he was. 
even identical twins, constituted of the exact same genetic material, were radically different from day one and always would be. Personally, I'm with Woodsworth, Wordsworth, who said, Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar. Not in entire forgetfulness, and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. End quote. In other words, none of us are born as passive generic blobs waiting for the world to stamp its imprint upon us. Instead, we show up possessing already a highly refined and individuated soul. Another way of thinking of it is this. We are not born with unlimited choices. We can't be anything we want to be. We come into this world with a specific personal destiny. We have a job to do, a calling to enact, and a self to become. We are who we are from the cradle, and we are stuck with it. Our job in this lifetime is not to shape ourselves into some ideal we imagine we ought to be, but to find out who we already are and become it. If we were born to paint, it's our job to become a painter. If we were born to raise and nurture children, it's our job to become a mother. If we were born to overthrow the order of ignorance and injustice of the world, then it's our job to realize it and get down to business. Territory versus Hierarchy In the animal kingdom, individuals divide themselves in one of two ways. By their rank within a hierarchy, like a hen in a pecking order or a wolf in a pack, or by their connection to a territory, a home base, a hunting ground, a turf. This is how individuals, humans as well as animals, achieve psychological security. They know where they stand. The world makes sense. The, of the two orientations, the hierarchical seems to be the default setting. It's the one that kicks in automatically when we're kids. We run naturally in packs and clicks. Without thinking about it, we know who's the top dog and who's the underdog. And we know our own place. We define ourselves, instinctively it seems, by our position within the schoolyard, the gang, or the club. It's only later in life, usually after a stern education in the University of Hard Knocks, that we begin to explore the territorial alternative. For some of us, this saves our lives. The Hierarchical Orientation most of us define ourselves hierarchically, and don't even know it. It's not hard to do. School, advertising, the entire materialistic culture drills us from birth to define ourselves by others' opinions. Drink this beer, get this job, look this way, and everyone will love you. What is a hierarchy anyway? Hollywood is a hierarchy. So are Washington, Wall Street, and the Daughters of the American Revolution. High school is the ultimate hierarchy, and it works. In a pond that small, the hierarchical orientation succeeds. The cheerleader knows where she fits, as does the dweeb in the chess club. Each has found a niche. The system works. There's a problem with the hierarchical orientation, though. When the numbers get too big, the thing breaks down. A pecking order can only hold so many chickens. In Massapequa High, you can find your place but move to Manhattan and the trick no longer works. New York City is too big to function as a hierarchy. So is IBM. So is Michigan State. 
the individual in multitudes this vast feels overwhelmed and anonymous. He is submerged in the mass. He's lost. We humans seem to have been wired by our evolutionary past to function most comfortably in a tribe of 20 to, say, 800. We can push it maybe to a few thousand, even to five figures, but at some point it maxes out. Our brain can't file that many faces. We thrash around, flashing our badges of status. Hey, how do you like my Lincoln Navigator? And wonder why nobody gives a shit. We have entered mass society. The hierarchy is too big. It doesn't work anymore. The artist in the hierarchy. For the artist to define himself hierarchically is fatal. Let's examine why. First, let's look at what happens in a hierarchical orientation. An individual who defines himself by his place in a pecking order will 1. Compete against all others in the order, seeking to elevate his station by advancing against those above him while defending his place against those beneath. 2. Evaluate his happiness, success, and achievement by his rank within the hierarchy, feeling most satisfied when he's high and most miserable when he's low. 3. Act towards others based upon their rank in the hierarchy, at the exclusion of all other factors. 4. Evaluate his every move solely by the effect it produces on others. He will act for others, dress for others, speak for others, and think for others. But the artist cannot look to others to validate his efforts or his calling. If you don't believe me, ask Van Gogh, who, who produced masterpiece after masterpiece and never found a buyer in his whole life. The artist must operate territorially. He must do his work for its own sake. To labor in the arts for any other reason than love is prostitution. Recall the fate of Odysseus's men who slew the cattle of the sun. Their own witlessness cast them away, the fools, to destroy for meat the oxen of the most exalted sun, wherefore the sun god blotted out the day of their return. In the hierarchy, the artist faces outward. Meeting someone new, he asks himself, what can this person do for me? How can this person advance my standing? In the hierarchy, the artist looks up and down. The one place he can't look is that place which he must, which is within. The definition of a hack. I learned this from Robert McKee. A hack, he says, is a writer who second guesses his audience. When, he, when the hack sits down to work, he doesn't ask himself what's in his own heart. He asks what the market is looking for. The hack condescends to his audience. He thinks he is superior to them. The truth is, he's scared to death of them, or, more accurately, scared of being authentic in front of them, scared of writing what he really feels or believes, what he himself thinks is interesting. He's afraid it won't sell. So, he, he tries to anticipate what the market, a telling word, wants, and then gives it to them. In other words, the hack writes hierarchically. He writes what he imagines a play will play well in the eyes of others. He does not ask himself, what do I myself want to write? What do I think is important? Instead, he asks, what's hot and what can I make a deal for? The hack is like the politician who consults the polls before he takes a position. 
He's a demagogue. He panders. It can pay off, though, being a hack. Given the depraved state of American culture, a slick dude can make millions being a hack. But even if you succeed, you lose. Because you've sold out your muse, and your muse is you. The best part of yourself, where your finest and only true work comes from. I was starving as a screenwriter when the idea for The Legend of Bagger Vance came to me. It came as a book, not a movie. I met with my agent to give him the bad news. We both knew that first novels take forever and sell for nothing. Worse, a novel about golf, even if we could find a publisher, is a straight shot to the remainder bin. But the muse had me. I had to do it. To my amazement, the book succeeded critically and commercially better than anything I've ever done, and others since have been lucky too. Why? My best guess is this. I trusted what I wanted, not what I thought would work. I did what I myself thought was interesting and left its reception to the gods. The artist can't do his work hierarchically. He has to work territorially. The Territorial Orientation There's a three-legged coyote who lives up the hill from me. All the garbage cans in the neighborhood belong to him. It's his territory. Every now and then, some four-legged intruder tries to take over. They can't do it. On his home turf, even a peg-leg critter is invincible. We humans have territories, too. Ours are psychological. Stevie Wonder's territory is the piano. Arnold Schwarzenegger's is the gym. When Bill Gates pulls into the parking lot at Microsoft, he's on his territory. When I sit down to write, I'm on mine. What are the qualities of a territory? 1. A territory provides sustenance. Runners know what a territory is. So do rock climbers and kayakers and yogis. Artists and entrepreneurs know what a territory is. The swimmer who towels off after finishing her laps feels a hell of a lot better than the tired, cranky person who dove into the pool 30 minutes earlier. A territory sustains us without any external input. A territory is a closed feedback loop. Our role is to put in effort and love. The territory absorbs this and gives it back to us in the form of well-being. When, ex when experts tell us that exercise, or any other effort requiring activity, banishes depression, this is what they mean. 3. A territory can only be claimed alone. You can team up with a partner, you can work out with a friend, but you only need yourself to soak up your territory's juice. 4. A territory can only be claimed by work. When Arnold Schwarzenegger hits the gym, he is on his own turf. But what makes it his own are the hours and years of sweat he put in to claim it. A territory doesn't give, it gives back. 5. A territory re returns exactly what you put in. Territories are fair. Every erg of energy you put in goes infallibly into your territory. A territory never devalues. A territory never crashes. What you deposited, you get back dollar for dollar. So, what is your territory? The artist and the territory. The act of creation is by definition territorial. As the mother-to-be bears her child within her, so the innovator, or artist, contains her new life. 
no one can help her give it birth, and neither does she need any help. The mother and the artist are watched over by heaven. Nature's wisdom knows when it's time for the life within to switch from gills to lungs. It knows down to the nanosecond when the first tiny fingernails may appear. When the artist acts hierarchically, she she short-circuits the muse. She insults her and pisses her off. The artist and the mother are vehicles, not originators. They don't create the new life, they only bear it. This is why birth is such a humbling experience. The new mom weeps in awe at the little miracle in her arms. She knows it came out of her, but not from her. Through her, but not of her. When the artist works territorially, she reveres heaven. She aligns herself with the mysterious forces that power the universe and that seek, through her, to bring forth new life. By doing her work for its own sake, she sets herself at the service of these forces. Remember, as artists we don't know diddly. We are winging it every day. For us to try to second-guess our muse the way a hack second-guesses his audience is condescension to heaven. It is blasphemy and it is sacrilege. Instead, let's ask ourselves like that new mother. What do I feel growing inside me? Let me bring that forth, if I can, for its own sake, and not for what it can do for me or how it can advance my standing. The Difference Between Territory and Hierarchy How can we tell if our orientation is territorial or hierarchical? One way is to ask ourselves, if I were really feeling anxious, what would I do? If we would pick up the phone and call six friends, one after the other, with the aim of hearing their voices and reassuring ourselves that they still love us, we are operating hierarchically. We are seeking the good opinion of others. What would Schwarzenegger do on a freaky day? He wouldn't phone his buddies, he'd head for the gym. He wouldn't care if the place was empty if he didn't say a word to a soul. He knows that working out, all by itself, is enough to bring him back to his center. His orientation is territorial. Here's another test. Of any activity you do, ask yourself, if I were the last person on earth, would I still do it? If you are all alone on the planet, a hierarchical orientation makes no sense. There's no one to impress. So if you'd still pursue that activity, congratulations. You are doing it territorially. If Arnold Schwarzenegger was the last man on earth, he would still go to the gym. Stevie Wonder would still pound out the piano. The sustenance they get comes from the act itself, not from the impression that it makes on others. I have a friend who's nuts for clothes. If she were the last woman on earth, she would shoot straight to Givenchy or Saint Laurent, Smash her way in and start pillaging. In her case, it wouldn't be to impress others. She just loves clothes. That's her territory. Now, what about ourselves as artists? How do we work? Hierarchically or territorially? If we were freaked out, would we go there first? If we were the last person on earth, would we still show up at the studio, the rehearsal hall, or the laboratory? The Supreme Virtue Someone once asked the Spartan King Leonidas to identify the supreme warrior virtue from which all others flowed. He replied, contempt for death. For us as artists, read failure. Contempt for failure is our cardinal virtue. 
by confining our attention territorially to our own thoughts and actions, in other words, to the work and its demands, we cut the earth from beneath the blue-painted, shield-banging, spear-brandishing foe. The Fruit of Our Labor When Krishna instructed Arjuna that we have a right to our labor, but not to the fruits of our labor, he was counseling the warrior to act territorially, not hierarchically. We must do our work for its own sake, not for fortune or applause or attention. Then there's the third way preferred by the Lord of Discipline, which is beyond both hierarchy and territory. That is to do the work and give it to Him. Do it as an offering to God. Give the act to me, purged of hope and ego. Fix your attention on the soul. Act and do for me. The work comes from heaven anyway. Why not give it back? To labor in this way, the Bhagavad Gita tells us, is a form of meditation and a supreme species of spiritual devotion. It also, I believe, conforms most highly, more, most closely to higher reality. In fact, we are servants of the mystery. We were put here on earth to act as agents of the infinite, to bring into existence that which is not yet, but which will be through us. Every breath we take, every heartbeat, every evolution of every cell comes from God and is sustained by God every second, just as every creation, invention, every bar of music or line of verse, every thought, vision, fantasy, or every dumbass flop and stroke of genius comes from that infinite intelligence that created us and the universe in all its dimensions, out of the void the field of infinite potential primal chaos, the muse. To acknowledge that reality, to efface all ego, to let the work come through us and give it back freely to its source, that, in my opinion, is as true to reality as it gets. Portrait of the Artist In the end of this book, we arrive at a kind of model of the artist's world, and that model is that there exists other, higher planes of reality, about which we can prove nothing, but from which arise our lives, our work, and our art. These spheres are trying to communicate with ours. When Blake said eternity is in love with the creations of time, he was referring to those planes of pure potential, which are timeless, placeless, spaceless, but which long to bring their visions into being here in this time-bound, space-defined world. The artist is the servant of that intention, those angels, and that muse. The enemy of the artist is the small-time ego, which begets resistance, which is the dragon that guards the gold. That's why an artist must be a warrior. And, like all warriors, artists over time acquire modesty and humility. They may, some of them, conduct themselves flamboyantly in public, but alone with the work they are chaste and humble. They know they are not the source of the creations they bring into being. They only facilitate. They carry. They are the willing and skilled instruments of the gods and goddesses they serve. The Artist's Life Are you a born writer? Were you put on the earth to be a painter, a scientist, or an apostle of peace? In the end, that answer can only be that question can only be answered by action. Do it or don't do it. It may help to think of it this way. 
if you were meant to cure cancer or write a symphony or crack cold fusion and you don't do it, you not only hurt yourself, even destroy yourself. You hurt your children. You hurt me. You hurt the planet. You shame the angels who watch over, over you and you spite the Almighty who created you and only you with your unique gifts for the sole purpose of nudging the human race one millimeter farther along its path back to God. Creative work is not a selfish act or a bid for attention on the part of the actor. It's a gift to the world and every being in it. Don't cheat us of your contribution. Give us what you've got. The End Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.